0: Welcome to Strength for Today's Pastor, conversations with current senior pastors and leaders which will strengthen and help you in your pastoral ministry. And now, here's your host, Bill Holdridge of Hoyman Ministries. Welcome to podcast number 124. Today we have as our guest, Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Church in Longmont, Colorado, just outside of Denver. We're going to be talking about Nick's book, The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. When I saw the title to the book, the subtitle to the book, I was immediately intrigued. It was recommended that we have Nick on the program, and he's graciously consented to do that. A little bit of Nick's background. He's been a missionary in Hungary. He's been a pastor, church planner. He's now in Colorado to be the lead pastor at Whitefields Church, holds a bachelor's degree in theology from the University of, and I'm going to try this now, Gloucestershire.
1: Gloucestershire.
0: Gloucestershire, okay. And a master's degree in integrative theology. That's an interesting uh, subject. I'd like to hear more about that from London School of Theology. Married to Rosemary, they have four children on the radio, call-in live radio show every Friday, which ought to be super interesting uh, for those that are in that area. He's also busy on the steering committee the committee of the Expositors Collective, which most of you probably will know what that is, uh, encouraging Christ-centered preaching and biblical exposition. He also serves with Calvary Global Network as a local connector and the leader, leader of the training team which is developing a program to assess, train, and deploy new church planters and missionaries. That's a lot. I'm getting tired just reading (laughs) what all you're doing, Nick, but I know you're doing it because uh, the Lord is directing you to do it. Welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. So tell me a little bit about Integrative Theology before we dive into the book. What's that title about?
1: Yes, yeah, so integrative theology integrates, as, you, as it sounds like. You integrate uh, different ways of doing theology. So you're integrating systematic theology, historical theology, and a few other you know, practices. And the, maybe the most important thing about integrative theology is that it gets into what's called theological method. Now, everybody has a theological method. It's basically the the method you use, whether you do it knowingly or whether you just do it intuitively. It's the method that you use to come to your theological conclusions. And so, for example, you might say, okay, one denomination in Christianity believes this on a particular issue. Another group believes this. And we could just say, well, we'll just agree to disagree. But what integrative theology does is it kind of goes below the belief or gets underneath the belief to kind of try to break down how you came to believe those things and what is the basis, uh, what are your fundamental assumptions, and how are you re- relating to the sources of theology uh, in order to come to those conclusions. So it's, it's absolutely fascinating, and it is extremely applicable, and, um, but yeah. There, there's a lot of good books out there on integrative theology, um, but it's it's much more practical than it might sound at first.
0: So what kind of challenges did that bring to you? I mean, you're having to think through why you think through the way you think through all that you think through.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd say for the most part, what it does is it causes you to rethink and, and really analyze, okay, How, why do I believe what I believe? Do I believe it um, purely because it's what the Bible teaches? But uh, you know, different Christians reading different, reading the same Bible come to different conclusions. Why is that? Well, it's how we draw on and how we prioritize different sources of theology, which would include tradition, reason, um, experience, community. Those are the big five, scripture, of course, being the first. And so, um, you know, I'll give you one quick example. So you could have somebody who is um let's say they they hold to a, a a view of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that would say that they're a cessationist. They don't believe that the gifts that, or at least the sign gifts are for today. Well, why do they believe that? Is that something that's historically taught throughout Uh, Christian history? If not, then why did people start believing that? Was it something to do with experience that caused them to read the Bible through that experience? And so if we are people who say that we believe that the scripture should be the foundation of everything that we believe, then are we actually doing that um, in every aspect of our systematic theology Right when it comes to every given topic? So, uh, for that, I thought it was hugely helpful, you know, and um, yeah.
0: Oh, that, that sounds great. I'd love to do a whole nother session just on that. But let's get into the book. So, your your academic background, largely in the area of theology, obviously in the area of theology, carried over into apologetics, which is what your book is, Defense of Christianity, uh, in the face of skepticism about the gospel, and, and, and as we were talking before we went on the air... Not just skepticism skepticism about the gospel, but skepticism about Christians themselves. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we talk about um, skepticism, I think that we can assume that some people who are skeptical about Christianity, those people are not Christians. Mm. Uh, what we did, the way that this book kind of came about is I had heard somebody kind of giving, uh, giving an argument for why he thought apologetic style series were actually important for, for doing in a regular preaching regimen. And so, you know, as you're teaching, let's say you're in the habit of teaching through books of the Bible, maybe you would break that up. Or at least maybe you would give an emphasis towards some apologetic topics from time to time. I thought, hey, that sounds great. And so, um, what we did is because I have the radio show and a few other few other avenues for getting uh, reaching people. One of the things we did is we put out a poll and we asked people in this poll to. Complete this sentence. I could never believe in a God who fill in the blank. So we put that out. You know, we had uh, several hundred responses through our different channels. It was completely anonymous, but we did have a thing where we would say, "Okay, do you consider yourself a Christian or not a Christian?" Many of the responses we got were from people who were not Christians, but we also got a lot of responses from people who said, "I am a Christian." And um, and what that told us is that these barriers to embracing Christianity are not just felt by people who are antagonistic to Christianity or who would identify as unbelievers. For many of these people, they are people. They, they want to uh, follow Jesus, but they have some serious uh, you know, considerations. They're like, well, I don't know what to make of this. If this is true, then I don't know if I can really believe, but I want to believe. On the other hand, um, the reason why we approach it this way with you know skepticism and defense of Christianity I think that sometimes when people talk about apologetics, they can think in terms of, um, it, it can be kind of a defensive posture, right? That says the world is against me and the world is against us as Christians. And you know what? Sometimes that's the case. But I would say other times, and that's really my tone in the book, is to say, you know, maybe sometimes it's just because people have unanswered questions. Or maybe they've just assumed something that has never been challenged. And we as Christians can come with a, uh, a generous uh, tone and just say, well, maybe we can help answer some of those questions for you that you have, and let's have a dialogue about it. And we don't have to um, take a defensive posture. You know, sometimes you'll see these uh, apologetics things that have like a logo with a guy wearing the armor, You know, I understand where that comes from. Um, but remember that that armor, like in Ephesians six is not for fighting against the world and, and, you know, people in our cities, it's, uh, the fighting against us or defending against, and then, uh, taking the offensive against the schemes of the devil. And so, yes, absolutely. We want to fight against the work of the devil, but, um, I don't necessarily think that we should be taking such an antagonistic position towards, or at least assuming an antagonistic position towards everybody else in society.
0: Well, that is the, the sense of the word apologia, from which we get the word apologetics anyway. It's not, it's not putting on armor and getting into the trench and getting ready for a battle. It's a making a defense. It's a reasoned argument having to do with the veracity of Christianity,
1: right? mm absolutely agreed okay
0: well um it's uh it's a great book i mean i've only started to read it i just got it a couple of days ago after i knew we were going to be doing this podcast and i skimmed through it read a couple of the chapters in depth excellent job and i i agree with you 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 had the target of having a a meek tone like it says in in first peter and you you accomplished that because that's what it is it's it's giving answers it's like a dialogue I really appreciate that, and I think it's a great tool, and the reason why we're doing this podcast is so that this can get into the hands uh, of pastors as well as in the hands of those that are in their congregations, because this is such a need today to provide a reasoned defense with meekness to a culture that wants Jesus. Like you said, many want him, but they have trouble with the barriers to uh, actually making that decision. So uh, that's excellent. So um, going through the book's uh, chapters, the chapter titles, um, let's just go through one at a time, and maybe you can just give a synopsis statement about what that, what that chapter deals with, and then we'll circle back on one of the chapters that really ought to be dived into today. How's that sound?
1: Sounds great. Yeah, so the book is called uh, The God I Won't Believe In. And so originally, this uh, I did a series of messages on these topics. It was originally going to be seven uh, topics, and we expanded it to nine as we went through it. But each chapter essentially begins with the idea of, I could never believe in a God who, and then completing that sentence. So I could never believe in a God who, someone might say, uh, hasn't proven his existence. That's where we start, is on these kind of big meta issues, kind of global issues, if you will. Um, you know, has God actually proven his existence? This is something that came out in the poll a lot. Um, and I've got actual quotes from people who wrote in in the poll. You know, we had kind of multiple choice answers, but then we also had options for people to write in. And so people would say things like, look, if God were real, we'd have proof. Or if God was would reveal himself to me, then I would believe. And, and people saying, well, there's just not enough proof out there. Uh, to believe it, therefore I don't. And so we look at questions of whether science and Christianity are at odds with one another. We look at a lot of quotes from very well-known scientists, and we give some statistics that might surprise people. For example, one, one of the ones that I found most surprising was that I think that many people assume that those in the scientific fields um, who would know about, you know, the origin of the universe and things like that, that they, they don't believe in God. Well, it's actually not the case. In fact, what, what we found through statistics is that, um, the highest percentages of people who don't believe in God are actually found in what we would call the humanities, right? So this would be areas of like anthropology, psychology, not in areas like physics and, um, chemistry where people are actually studying these things in fact in the hard sciences as we refer to those um, actually more than fifty percent at least believe in God uh, whether or not they follow Jesus is a different question but believing in the existence of God is not something that that science negates that mm. that's really the point of that chapter and we give you know a lot of quotes from Guys like Alvin Plantinga, uh, who's a very famous Christian philosopher, but also some scientists as well in that. Uh, The next chapter is called A God, So I Could Never Believe in a God Who Gave Us a Faulty Bible. This is one that that came back a lot. They say, uh, for example, here's a quote from our poll. It is unclear whether, whether the Bible really is the word of God. Or someone else said, I have a hard time basing my life on a book written thousands of years ago by the leaders of that time. Uh, in my opinion, the Bible was and still is a tool to oppress people. And so the question is, can we really trust the Bible? Are the things it says actually inspired by God? Or are the, was it is the Bible a tool for oppression? And so we go through that. I mean, there's an assumption in there that the Bible was written by leaders of the time. Well, that's actually refutable. We can show that that wasn't the case. And, um, and we can go through it and show that uh, even though we don't have original copies of the Bible, um, we give some statistics in there about how the Bible is actually the most reliable ancient document that we have, and we give some proof of that in this, kind of looking at other documents, which most people would not even question their uh, veracity or originality, um, and yet we give statistics to show that this that the Bible is actually much more believable. I'll give you one example here. There's a chart in the book there um, that says in this chapter, you know, so the most documented books from antiquity are, um, let's say a good example would be the writings of Tacitus, the Roman. um, He's a historian. Mm -hmm. So he wrote around the same time as Jesus. And yet uh, the earliest manuscripts we have are from 1100 A.D., So about a thousand years lapsed between the original writing and the documents we have, or the manuscripts, what we call them. And we have 20 manuscripts. Now, compare that to the New Testament. The earliest manuscripts we have are from the 2nd century AD. So within less than 100 years after the original writings. And the number of manuscripts we have are 5,686. So if you compare that, I mean, the, it's not even close. Right. It is the, the most um, reliable manuscripts and books that we, of any ancient writing that even exists. So we, we give some other things like, you know, is the Bible a tool for oppression or was the Bible subversive to established powers? And we answer mm-hmm. those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. The next chapter, this was one that I thought would be, would be really um, a question that a lot of people have. And I think some people did. But maybe it was a question that, that was more of my question. Um, and that was, uh, I could never believe in a God who condoned genocide in the Old Testament. So we read about the Amalekites, for example, in the Old Testament. And, and how is it that in the Old Testament, you read about God condoning or even telling people to wipe out entire populations. It seems antithetical to the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. So we go into that and we look at... Um, the situation, the heart of God, how these things make sense, um, and and give an answer to that, but also a solemn warning. I think that uh, the big the big takeaway from this is that. God has the prerogative for justice, and yet there there is still a question where you can allow an issue like this to derail you or give you an excuse to not deal with the real question of what about you, right? Like where do you stand when it comes to God?
0: Yeah, those are that was one of the chapters that I read more in depth, Nick. And and as I read the chapter, I'm thinking, gosh, I hope he covers this part of the answer, and you did. And then and then you covered other things that I hadn't thought about, and it was really good. So, I want to stop you here just for a second and just ask, I think, which is an important question for for many. Many would look at the realm of apologetics and say it's not necessary because the objections that people have to the Christian faith are born out of a moral problem that they have, and like Jesus said in John chapter 3, the one who does the truth comes to the light, the one who does not do, do, do the truth doesn't come to the light. And so on, and and so why do we do apologetics? Uh, but of course, the book uncovers necessary things. So, what is your response to somebody who, who makes that statement? Apologetics are for the purpose; uh, they're 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 fulfilling a purpose which isn't necessary. We should shoot at the moral problem that people have.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's something to that. I think that that actually comes out in the poll that we did, where we saw that many people, and this is why the latter half of the book deals with kind of more personal issues that are not so much empirical questions. And and that is that, yeah, a lot of times it's really a personal thing, not so much an intellectual thing. I think that that is true. On the other hand, I think that it's important that we be able to give a reasonable defense to those who ask about the hope that we have, uh, as Peter says. But but I think one more thing is important to take note of here, and that is that what is the posture of Jesus towards those who have doubts? Mm-hmm. I think that there are two kinds of doubt that I can see in the Bible. Uh, maybe it's exemplified well in Genesis chapter 18, where the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham and Sarah as they're in their tents and And these messengers from the Lord, they essentially reiterate to Abraham this promise that was given to him years before, that he would have a child. But since that original promise, of course, 10 years has passed, and Abraham asks, he goes, okay, you you told me this, but how can I know that this will really happen? And then it says that Sarah was there, and she heard the promise, and she laughed, but she scoffed. So I think you see two kinds of doubt right there in their reactions. You see the doubt of Abraham, who's like, I I want to believe, but I have a sincere question. And you see no judgment from God towards him uh, for asking that question. Or you see a lot of uh, mercy and kindness. On the other hand, you see that God um, isn't really happy with uh, Sarah's mocking laugh and response and her mocking doubt. And yet he he is merciful towards her as well. A uh, very important verse is in Jude. I think it's Jude 22, which mm-hmm. chapter 1, verse 22. Mm-hmm. Have mercy on those who doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, it, one of my favorite, I think it really is shocking almost, is in Matthew 28, where Jesus gives the Great Commission. If you read two verses before the Great Commission, it's very interesting. Jesus appears to his disciples on a mountain in Galilee um, before his ascension. And it says that as they were gathered there, the disciples, before Jesus gave them that commission, it says they worshiped him, but some doubted. Mm. Now, now, how is that, right? Mm-hmm. Was that a moral problem? Mm. Maybe, but it seems that this is just such a, such a serious thing to say that Jesus has actually risen from the grave, mm-hmm. that the things that the Christian gospel claims, I mean, they're... They're pretty serious, and you can understand that even though the disciples could see Jesus with their eyes, they're still struggling to understand, but they're worshiping at the same time. Mm. So you can still worship God and wrestle with doubts at the same time. So I would say that um, that just that general posture towards those who have sincere doubts, I would say that the Bible encourages us to, to give answers to those.
0: Oh, that's great. So if somebody believes in the gospel and understands and is committed to the idea that Jesus rose from the dead, that's enough for salvation and justification. You can work out the other doubts as time goes on. (laughs) You know, J.P. Moreland, I was listening to him years ago, and it was fascinating. He was presenting a case for the idea that doubts actually prove the existence of faith in Mm. someone, and I'd never heard that take on it before, and I've thought about it ever since. Doubts prove the existence of faith. Because how can you doubt if there's no something objective that you are resisting, that you believe to be at least real enough to where you could doubt it? You're putting up a defense against something that must be real somewhere in your mind. So I don't know, I thought that was very interesting.
1: Yeah, my friend Dominic Doan, he wrote a book on the topic of doubt, and he had something that I've always thought about since he he wrote it. He said that doubt is not where faith ends. It's where faith begins okay. because you, you can't have faith unless there's something that you need to believe in, right? It's the, it's the conviction of things not seen. Yeah, So
0: oh, I love that. Okay, let's keep going on these chapters now. This is great. Sure,
1: yeah, and then the next chapter would be uh, God Who Creates Hateful, Hypocritical Followers. And in my experience, that's been the one that many people really uh, go to first. I handed the book to my 14-year-old son, told him to open to the table of contents and um, and see. I was curious which chapter intrigued him the most, and automatically, number one, that was the one. And I found that with many people. Um, and that's an interesting one because you're not actually necessarily doubting whether Christianity is true, but what you're you're essentially saying, if if it's true, then it should work, and therefore, if it doesn't work, then maybe it's not true. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting discussion. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that is the number one response that we got in our poll and other polls that have come along is something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, next would be a God who suppresses women and minorities. So has Christianity and does the Bible inherently encourage the suppression of the weak um, and, and essentially allow a system or create a system in which those who have strength oppress others? Um, so that's a question, again, ask, questioning God's goodness and really the goodness of the Bible, whether we can trust it, those kinds of things. Um, another one, and this is a big one, a God who sends people to hell. You know, can, can we really believe in a God who would do such a thing? So we talk about questions of, you know, hell, is it, is it really forever? Is it eternal conscious torment or is it, is it, um, and how can that be just right? What does the punishment fit the crime? Let's say, you know, as, as we might say, it only takes one sin to be a sinner, but then let's say you, you committed a small number of sins and didn't believe in Jesus. And yet you're going to. Uh, be punished for eternity? Like, how is that fair? And if God is not fair, then is he really a God that you can believe in? The next topic would be a God who says some love is wrong. So here we deal with issues of sexuality, um, particularly, and not just homosexuality, but definitely including homosexuality. But also, you know, what about people who live together or sleep together before marriage? Like, why does God, shouldn't he so to say, mind his own business and just let people be happy. And so why would God tell people not to do something which they want to do and which makes them happy? Uh, the next topic is a God who lets bad things happen to good people. Of course, this is the topic of theology that we call theodicy. It's the topic of the, what many people believe is the very first book of the Bible written chronologically, the book of Job. And it's a question that, again, it's very personal, um, I, I've talked to Christians who struggle with this. They say, you know, I believed in God, but then this thing happened to me. And I wondered how could God allow such a thing to happen? Uh, it's extremely relevant with what's, with, with what's going on in the world right now, particularly in Ukraine. And so it's a big question. And then the final one is a little bit shorter, uh, chapter. It's the shortest chapter in the book, but I think it's again, one of the most relevant, and that is a God who doesn't answer my prayers. And some people say, well, if there is a God and, and I prayed for something and it was a good thing, it wasn't a selfish thing, why would God not answer it? Well, maybe there is no God. Maybe I'm just talking into my own head. And so we answer that uh, question and objection as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's a great synopsis. So circling back, which, which one of these chapters would you like to dive into a little bit more? Your most responded to one was the one about Christians and hypocrites and those kinds of things. But t- take your pick.
1: <laughs> yeah, if I was going to pick one, I think I would dial into this one about a God who doesn't answer my prayers. Okay. Um, I've gotten a ton of response about this as well. And um, and again, this gets back to the topic. It's kind of how we arrange the chapters was that we start with the big global meta issues. And then it gets more personal. And one of the things I say, I think it starts around chapter four, where I say, you know, what's really interesting is it seems that most people who uh, doubt Christianity or have given up on Christianity, so to say, have done so because, not because they can't believe in miracles, not because they you know, feel like science has discredited God or the Bible, but really it's something personal. And oftentimes uh, it's... That's something we need to. I would encourage people to think through that. When it, when it comes to apologetics, we want to just not not just answer the question, but answer the questioner. Mm. What what is going on in their heart that's causing them to ask these questions? Mm-hmm. And for many people, it's very personal. Um, one statistic we found is that almost everyone uh, prays. This is really interesting. Thirty four percent of the U.S. population regularly attends religious services but almost 80% say that they pray with frequency, right? And so that's not just people who every now and then throw up a, a lob to God, so to say, right? This is 80% of people say in the United States that they pray regularly. Now, Now, if you consider that, um, that's, that's really high compared to the number of people who, who attend church or who even identify as a Christian, um, it, Another (laughs) statistic showed that many people who aren't even sure if they believe in God still pray. Um, And so, why is it that people pray? And then, why is it so crushing when people pray and they don't get the response that they want? And, you know, I give an anecdotal example from the Call In radio show where someone said, you know, they've given up on God because they prayed for their husband to be healed and he died. And if it gets to the question of theodicy, again, if God is all powerful and if God is loving, then why doesn't he answer my prayers? Either he doesn't love me or he can't help, in which case he's not God. W- why does he answer some people's prayers, not others? It seems arbitrary. You know, some people will pray for things that, you know, they'll pray for a parking lot at the, at the store or parking spot
0: uh-huh. at
1: the store. Another person's praying that their mother would be healed of cancer, and she's not. And that can be, that can be very difficult. And people wonder, okay, maybe, maybe there really is no God. And I'm just, I've just uh, deluded myself into thinking that. So we go into it. We look at Paul's unanswered prayer in Second Corinthians 12, verse 8, um, where he talks about three times he prayed. And really, you know, not just prayed, but he begged God for something. And God said no to him and told him instead that his grace was sufficient for his powers made perfect in weakness. And one of the things that uh, we get to tying it all together is this idea that with God, what we have is not a genie in a bottle, but a father in heaven. I don't think I say those words exactly in the book, but, um, but I, I believe that to be true. And it's definitely the intent of the chapter is to say with a genie in a bottle, it's essentially, it's kind of like treating God like a vending machine. If you insert the right amount of money and, you know, push the right buttons, then it will kick out what you want. Um, and yet God doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how do we deal with that? Mm-hmm. Well, if we understand that rather than a genie in a bottle, we have a father in heaven and that's actually better. That that really helps mm-hmm. because a genie in a bottle is obligated to give you what you want, even if it's not good for you. Right? Even if you look at the genie mm-hmm. stories in the, in the antiquity, oftentimes that's characteristic, right? That the genie gives them what they ask for, but it ends up to be a curse. Well, with God, we have a father who knows us best and loves us most and will give us what we as Tim Keller says, what we would have asked for if we knew what he knows.
0: (laughs) I love that. (laughs) That's great.
1: So, so yeah, that's what the, that chapter is about. But again, like there, there's nine other chapters and and each of them kind of stands on their own. I've told this to people. They're like, yeah, I'm working my way through your book. I'm like, well, rather than working your way through it, just, just look at which chapter would be most helpful to you and just read it. You can easily read them out of order.
0: Yeah, that's, that's good advice, although there was sort of an objective truth theme in the first four chapters, and then more of a subjective response theme in the last, but still, any anyway. So of the responses that you've gotten, and of the uh, responses that you've given on your radio show, and in the book, and interaction since then, since you did the series in your church, uh, what has been... Uh, the result, and in, in terms of people really going, wow, okay. I mean, my heart is really settled now. I'm I'm in a different place because I heard that, or read that, or thought that through.
1: I'll give you one example, and that is, um, you know, this. This uh, a lot of the content for this came about um, in 2019, so a year before the pandemic. Then the pandemic happened, and um, and we had interestingly, our church grew a lot during 2020 and 2021. And so we had new members in our church. Um, One of those members, his wife, uh, unfortunately passed away due to COVID in late 2020. So in uh, 2021, he came to me, I I was standing in our church bookstore, and he said, hey, do you have anything here in the bookstore that could help me out? Because he says, I'm just really struggling with the death of my wife i prayed for her we're believers you know we've we've done essentially what god said to do in his word and yet this tragedy happened in my life And he said, do you have anything that could kind of help me work through that? So I gave him a couple options, but then I said, you know what? I also kind of have a message that I've presented before on this topic. Maybe I could just send that to you. So I did. And then he said, oh, hey, that was great. I listened to it several times. Could you send me your notes? So I sent him my notes and he said, you know, you should really turn this into a book. So that's how it became a book. But it happened because of uh, this man who had lost his wife Feeling that this at least gave him some comfort, some grounding by talking about the topic of, you know, why does God let, you know, bad things happen to to people he loves? Uh, one, one more example is that, um, you know, someone who's close to us here in the church, uh, she lost her husband in her 20s. And she discovered this content actually on the radio. Uh, it played on a radio sh- show. And she said that she ended up listening to this series just on repeat uh, as she would take long drives to visit family. And it just helped her so much to think through these big questions. And she was a Christian, but she was really struggling. And, um, and so I think that this has helped people so far, and I hope it continues. And I would say there are really three groups of people who who it serves. The first is those who struggle with these these questions and would say, I'm on the fence about believing in Jesus uh, and embracing Christianity. I would say this book is for them. Uh, secondly, I would say this book is for, like these Christian folks I mentioned, who say, I want to believe, but man, I have some real questions, either because of things that have happened or, or you know, I'm just generally struggling. And then the third group would be people who say, you know, I'm not really struggling with these questions personally, but maybe maybe I have kids, maybe I have grandkids, maybe I have friends at work, and they ask these kinds of questions. And so I want to be able to give thoughtful answers to them that are biblical. So I would say for any of those people, uh, I hope it could be a great
0: resource. It is. It is totally a great resource. And I can, I can just... Uh Imagine how helpful um, what you've shared. So a, a question, Nick. So are all the chapters in your book, are they covered in an audio message you gave to the church in some way, shape, or form?
1: They are. But when in, as we were going through turning them into a book, you know, this came from my, my experience being in school, was just that we went through and we made sure that any claims that we made could be verifiable, So we went back, got sources and that, that took months actually Mm -hmm. of doing that research. And in, in some cases we had to change things Mm -hmm. because we wanted to be accurate and we wanted to be, you know, something where this is, you know, we're, it's backed up. So I'd say what's unique about this book um, is that there's a lot of footnotes. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so anything you want more information on, you know, you can go and check the footnotes and follow those up. So, there are messages, but in the process of writing the book, we did change some things.
0: Mm-hmm. Are you turning it into an audiobook? We are. We just
1: had a meeting about that today. Um, a guy on my staff, actually, that was his job before working with our church is he produced audiobooks. And he suggested that we should actually add some some unique content to the audiobook. And so that's that's our goal. So I would hope that uh, that'll probably be out in a couple months, and my hope would be that we, create something that would cause people to say, you know, I want to get the audiobook in addition as well.
0: Are you going to be the reader for the audiobook? So the plan is that I'm going
1: to read the introduction stories, uh-huh. kind of how we got to this topic, and then we would have a professional reader read the other parts.
0: Okay, well, you could do it too, <laughs> but anyway, that's <laughs> I understand the choice. Well, that's great. Nick, it's really been great to connect with you and the, your thoughts on the book and just to be exposed a little bit more about what it says. So I want to give you a couple of minutes now as we wrap up the podcast to just speak a word to, directly to pastors, because th- this podcast is aimed at pastors to strengthen them. Uh, anything on your heart, on or off topic?
1: Yeah, thank you, Bill. Um, you know, what? as I was thinking through this, here's what's on my heart is um, this idea of abiding in Jesus that comes from what Jesus said in, in the farewell discourse in John 15, idea of abiding in him and that the fruit will be produced as we abide in him. And if you look at that, you know, he, he says in verse 8 of chapter 15, he says that by this, my father is glorified that you produce much fruit. And I was thinking, I was I was teaching this recently and trying to give a definition for what it means to be fruitful, and I came up with something along these lines of, you know, to have a fruitful life means, it means that as you're abiding in Christ, things are being produced out of your life that are life-giving and helpful, uh, beneficial to others, and they bring glory to God. And, and if you also think about that, um, as a, a grapevine, right, the purpose of a grapevine is to Produce grapes. So if you are producing grapes, you're fulfilling your purpose. And what that means for us, we were created for that purpose to bring glory to God, to live in connection with God, and then to let that byproduct be something that is a blessing to others. Uh, what's just strong on my heart is this idea that as a pastor, sometimes I have thought that I need to focus on you know, having uh, a meaningful or significant life, right? Like, oh, I don't want to waste my time. I want to use my time and I want to do significant things. And where I've come over the last several years is finding that my identity and my value, my significance and meaning in life should not be my primary pursuit, but my primary pursuit should be abiding in Christ. Mm. And then whatever form he chooses to let that fruit come out of my life and that significance and whatever, that's up to him and he will see to it that that happens. But really a a significant and meaningful life is found uh, in abiding in him. And so that's where I've, I've come. And that's really what's strong in my heart to share with others is... Rather than seeking those things directly it's this uh you know so to say back backwards mode of the kingdom where it's you seek him and then he gets to define what that fruit is and what that significance will be in his way and um, and and yet you know abiding in him is what will be the the route to that and, and the reason I think about that is because I have a lot of friends in Ukraine and Um, I was actually supposed to be in Kiev, uh, in early March, I was scheduled, they even had plane tickets and, um, you know, COVID insurance and all this stuff to be there to teach their leadership conference for Calvary chapels in Kiev or in Ukraine. And, uh, and, you know, it really makes you wonder, like, I think the metrics we use for considering significance, not just in ministry, but in life in general, you really got to question them when it comes to a war situation or a situation where people are destitute. But what you find is that, look, if you spent your life abiding in Jesus and producing good fruit, that would be a significant life whether you, you know, ever had any of the other things that maybe this world considers um, means or metrics of significance.
0: That's great, Nick. Thanks so much for sharing that. That's that's encouraging. Again, thanks to Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Church in Longmont, Colorado, and his book is entitled, The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. And I'm hoping, Nick, that pastors will buy this so that they can read it themselves, and that they'll even consider having small group Bible studies with regard to this, get it into the hands of people that are struggling with some of these questions. And I can see grandparents sitting down with their grandchildren taking him through this it's easy enough to understand with a little adult help on certain issues uh, I think it's it's going to uh, grow in its uh, reach and I and I'm so so thankful about that the church website is whitefieldschurch.com all one word whitefieldschurch.com where there are lots of resources available from pastor Nick and in terms of teaching radio and all those kinds of things so Again, thanks, Nick, and thank you for listening to Strength for Today's Pastor. Shoot us a question, shoot us a request or a comment. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Strength for Today's Pastor is sponsored by Pointman Ministries. You can find us at poinmanministries.com. That's spelled P-O-I-M-E-N ministries.com. If something in today's program prompts a question or comment, or if you have a topic idea for a future episode, just shoot us an email at StrongerPastors at gmail.com. That's StrongerPastors at gmail.com. May the Lord bless you as you serve Him, His pastors, and His church.